0: Hello, ladies, and welcome to another exciting episode on the Ask With Confidence podcast. We are so glad you're joining us today and hope you leave this episode feeling empowered to take on your most difficult conversations. I'm your host, Katherine Kanaki. I'm a nurse, mediator, and the Chief Operating Officer at the American Negotiation Institute, and I am passionate about helping women like you get the most out of your conversations and get ahead in life. Before we start, is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If so, check out our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we would love to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Today, we have Julia on the show. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. So good to have you. Why
1: don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Thank you. Yes, I I will. I actually... Uh, in the wonderful situation of having what younger people these days are calling portfolio careers. So I do many different things in the course of a working day. I am employed in a corporation here in Europe as a director of corporate communications. But alongside that, I'm also a qualified professional executive coach. And I have my own coaching practice. And funnily enough, not by design, but more by coincidence, I coach probably around 90% of the people who come to my practice are women. So I do indeed see a number of themes that come out of of, of coaching a lot of women. I also have written a book that draws on um, my experience when I trained as a coach, suddenly understanding issues that I had been running into from a work perspective and ways to resolve them. And I felt that the book may help women in a similar situation. And then finally, I also, this past year, started a startup with an old colleague of mine which is designed to bring executive coaching to younger people. So at a price point, they can pay, but also just to help them understand the advantages of going through coaching when there's an issue at work. So that's
0: me. Awesome, you're a woman of many hats, doing so many things. (laughs) I appreciate that you are helping the younger generation and preparing them for the workplace. Now you mentioned your book. We will definitely put that link in the description. What is the title of that book?
1: It's called Insider Secrets.
0: So audience, we will put that link in the description below so you can read it and access it. It's a great book. And I'm really excited for our conversation today. We are talking about how to be successful in your company's culture. And I wanted to touch on the culture part. Why is it important to include the culture and not just say the company, how to succeed in your company?
1: Because every company is different. I think it's important for people to be aware that when they move from one company to another, that what made them successful in one company won't necessarily make them successful in another. And that's all down to culture. It's all down to, you know, every company has its own way of getting things done, which kind of dictates the culture. And so in order to be successful in any company, you need to really be thinking about what's the culture doing? What does it promote? How do people get things done? What are the politics? So these are all really important if you want to be successful.
0: So the first thing we're going to talk about when it comes to being successful in our company's culture is the internalization and personalization of issues at work. What do
1: you mean by that? Yeah, so one of the things that I see coming through in my coaching practice, and particularly amongst younger women, is that if something goes wrong at work, what we have a tendency to do is to kind of look inside to find out what we did wrong or what we did to contribute to the fact that this project or this initiative isn't working. And I used to do it a lot myself. I can remember working on projects and the projects being rejected or being highly criticised or not being adopted when we had hoped they would be. And indeed, going inside myself and thinking, surely there was something I could have done better that would have meant that this would be a success. And it's interesting actually, because if you take a look around you at work, women do have a tendency to internalize, whereas men quite often do the opposite. And they have a feeling of, no, I did what I needed to do, so the problem must lie elsewhere. And one of the things that that I was talking to a very young entrepreneur about not so long ago is this rise of burnouts amongst the younger generations. And her take was that part of this internalization is that the root cause of why so many young women get burnt out in organizations today. Because once you start to think, I did something wrong, I contributed to the failure and I should be finding out what, it can get you on a kind of a negative spiral. You can get into a mindset where you're constantly looking for your failings and you begin to feel stressed and under enormous pressure. And that's not something that we want young women or women of any age to be facing in organisations.
0: Brilliant. The burnt out, the link between burning out and internalizing things. Why does internalizing or the way we internalize issues at work cause burnout?
1: I think the first thing I should say is that it doesn't happen to everybody. But I know that a number of women deal with what we call the inner critic, the voice in your head that is constantly telling you you're not good enough, that is constantly telling you you should be doing better. And once we begin to internalize things, we kind of give Free reign to this inner critic we have in our head, and once that happens, you find it more and more difficult to actually see the positives of what you bring to work and the things that you do well. And if not stopped, that can massively contribute to people feeling that they they can't do their job properly, or there's too much stress on them, or whatever they're trying is not quite working, which all contribute to this burnout uh, phenomenon we're seeing amongst young people these days.
0: Yeah, with us internalizing things, one of the things that we recommend in our conversations and to get better is an internal self-reflection. How does that differ from this internalization that is causing problems
1: for women? Well, I think an internal self-reflection really helps you take a step back and put distance between yourself and what's going on. And certainly when I work with coaches, that's what we try and do is the minute they feel that the work they're doing inside becomes very self-critical is that we try and build a stop in there and ensure that they're able to take a step backwards and think, hang on a second, I need to look at this through a different lens. And self-reflection, what we try and do or, or try and encourage coaches to do is very much to look at that across the board. So not just, "Okay, you know, how did I show up in the situation? But also, what was I doing right? What parts of the situation do I actually feel quite proud that I did? And where could I maybe have sharpened things up? So self-reflection gives you a distance from an issue, but also gives you kind of a much more balanced way of looking at things. As I said, once you've given the inner critic voice in your head free reign, it's very difficult to do positive self-reflection.
0: Yeah, definitely. So how do we stop this hamster wheel of negative self-reflection or internalization of issues? What are some things that we can do to turn the tables and reverse it? Well
1: as with a lot of things in life there's no one single answer and I think everybody you know who deals with this problem will probably do things slightly differently but for me I think the first thing is recognizing that you do it and beginning to recognize what happens in you when you're starting on that slippery slope downwards. For myself for example when I used to do this a lot when I was younger and starting out in the corporate world and I would notice myself unable to let go so if I felt I'd failed on a project, it would become the thing I would think about almost all the time. Over dinner, when I was walking home, when I'd gone to bed, when I woke up in the morning, it would constantly be this theme in my head of, you know, niggling away of what what was wrong, what did I do wrong? So, So when you start to recognize the things that you're doing that you know lead to that slippery slope, again, it's time to just literally say to yourself, stop, take a deep breath, and try and take a step backwards figuratively. And see if you can look at what really could be going on in the situation alongside you maybe being uh, an issue in it. And what I do with coaches in this situation is we literally just start to list what else could be going on that you have nothing to do with that could have derailed this project. And it could be stuff like poor planning. It could be things like, you know, you started off the project when budgets were okay, but now budgets are being slashed. And it could simply be that there's something going on in in, in the company that you don't know about and you may never know about because it's a confidential thing. Maybe there's a a merger coming or something that you don't know about could have impacted this. And what I see when I work with coaches in this way is just simply talking through what else could be going on, even down to perhaps a slightly ridiculous that that maybe the person who had the decision had had a row with his wife that day and was just in a really bad mood and, and your project became victim of it. All of these things begin to give space and begin to give distance, which allow us to change the tone of voice going on in our
2: head. Hey everyone, I have an exciting announcement for you. As you know, here at the American Negotiation Institute, we believe that the best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. In order to live the best versions of our lives, we need to negotiate to get what we deserve. But here's the secret. When it comes to effective negotiation and conflict resolution, knowing what to do is only half the battle. This is nothing without the confidence you need to execute. And that's where the Negotiate Anything online course comes into play. This isn't just a negotiation course, this is a confidence course. After you finish the course, you'll know exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to say it for maximum persuasion. And most importantly, you'll have the confidence that you need to take action when the time is right. In other words, you'll have the skills and confidence you need to get what you deserve at work or in your business. This will help you to become the leader and negotiator that you always dreamed you could be. We were supposed to start in early January, but unfortunately, the day I was planning on recording, I lost my voice, so I wasn't able to do that. So the new start date is February 17th. Check out the website to learn more, and there's also going to be a link in the description. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode.
0: That kind of brings us into our second point. How does it derail us in our conversations?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the things is when we look at this, it becomes a habit. So it's not, it doesn't just happen when, I don't know, a project goes wrong, but it comes back in many, many different situations in the workplace. And I think one of the bonds that we were talking about is how this can impact people in meetings. And quite often in meetings, if you have this tendency to internalize what's not working, it can again stymle you and stop you being effective in meetings. And and again, I've seen this happen several times, a piece of criticism from perhaps somebody who's slightly more assertive than ourselves or a bit of negative feedback on one part of a presentation we're giving. If you internalize things, it can really throw you off what you're doing and actually make you perform quite badly. Say more about that. Why does it make us perform bad in meetings? Where's that link? As I said, you know, it'll put you off your game. But also what I've seen actually is I think what happens is when the the inner critic begins to speak, as I say, we become kind of that's what we're hearing and that's what we're focusing on in our own mind. And it's very, very easy at that moment to forget what's going on around us and to begin again to just niggle away at that one thing. Why did he respond so negatively to me in that case? What did I say that deserved that feedback? And it does completely throw people off what they're doing. What I advise in this case is actually, if you know you're going into a meeting where there's a lot at stake, or when you're going to be put into a position where you feel slightly weaker than normal, for example, if you hate presenting, really make sure you prepare the meeting completely, perhaps over-prepare, but that gives you that boost of confidence that if the voice starts talking in your head, that you can say back to the voice, no, I've got this, I'm so well prepared, I can keep going.
0: What does that preparation look like?
1: The interesting thing is I've I've, um, not only coached people, but I've also ran teams over the years. And what I would always say to the people in my teams is this is not personal. You are working for a company. You're going into a meeting to get the best result you believe for the company. So try and prepare it as you would perhaps a game of chess. So chess masters go into a game knowing exactly where they want to be at the end of it. And they've already begun to formulate their moves for how to get there. And I would say, actually, the same is true for meetings. If you know that you want to get decision X out of a meeting, then I would prepare very carefully thinking, okay, who's in the room with me? What are their interests? What are they likely to want to get out of the meeting? And to begin to think about, okay, the moves you can make to get what you want. So, for example, if you know somebody is worried about money, then maybe one of the moves you could use in a meeting is to suggest you do a first part of the work for a certain amount of money, and if that's successful, the rest of the budget is put on the table. So you've already thought ahead of time how you can get that person to say yes. And what I see in coaches and team members is this idea of it being a game, a game of chess, actually allows them to put distance between themselves and what's happening. And that really does then remove a lot of the personal because it's no longer about you performing. It's more about the game you're playing with somebody else.
0: You're totally right. And we talk about preparation all the time. Just quick shout out to the guides. I've mentioned it a lot on the podcast. You can go to americannegotiationinstitute.com forward slash guides and get an array of guides. And all of this can help you prepare for your negotiations, which is one of the most important things that you can do. But getting back to the topic, what are some blind spots we might have when it comes to this?
1: To being in meetings and being successful in meetings. Correct. I think one of the things is, and I I certainly don't know how it is in the US, but here in Europe, I think probably a lot of people's working days are tied up in meetings. And it's very easy to just go from meeting to meeting to meeting without actually taking a step back in between and working out, letting go of the meeting you've just had and working out what you want to get out of the one that's coming up next. So again, you know, these are little things and, and they may sound slightly obvious. But it's very easy to forget them in the day-to-day bustle and hustle of work. And that's just simply, indeed, you know, taking a step back between meetings, working out what your game, what your chess moves are going to be in the next one. And again, reminding yourself that this is work. It's not personal. It's about getting good results for everybody around the table. Interesting at this point, I just wanted to say that sometimes when I talk to people, um, they say that they feel this is a little bit disingenuous to be you know, coming up with tactics before meetings of how to deal with certain people. But actually what I would say them again is it really isn't. You're all around the table to get the best outcome for your business or the best outcome for a project or the best solution to a challenge. And everybody around the table in the business setting is potentially looking at it as a game. So if you don't prepare your moves in advance, you could well be outplayed by somebody who has.
0: That's deep. <laughs> that, that, that is so deep. I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Final thing, because we are about to come up on time. So in our conversation that we talked about earlier, you talked about the importance of the gut instinct. How does yeah. that have a role in these? How can it help us be successful?
1: So thank you. That's a, that's a really interesting question. We all recognize gut instinct. you know, that kind of instantaneous response to things. Like I'd I, I like to call our gut instincts our early warning system. And these early warning systems we have are made up of all of the experience that you've had in your life, in your professional life, in your personal life. And the results of that has has either made you look incredibly positively in some situations, or done what I said, uh, kind of created an early warning system that if your gut suspects something's not quite right in a situation, it'll pull a bell so that you're aware of it. Now, what often happens in large corporations is we feel we have to have really grounded business cases for everything we say and do. We have to have the numbers on the table. We have to have a strategy for it. And actually, sometimes your gut instinct doesn't quite fit in that. And so I've known a lot of people, coaches and professionals, and done it myself, actually, where you think, okay, my gut instinct to this, you know, instinctive reaction to this issue is X, but instincts don't necessarily belong in the workplace. So I'm just going to keep going. But it's well worth, whenever you get a kind of instant feeling of something's not right in this situation or something this person is saying is just doesn't sound good to me, what I'd advise is listen to your early warning system. Take a step back again and just ask yourself, where is this coming from? What is it about this person or this situation that's making me feel really uncomfortable? And go through, list all the possible things that it could be until you get that aha moment of, ah, Now, this person reminds me of my former boss who, when this happened, would always get really angry. So maybe that's why my gut is giving the early warning system. So my advice in that sense would be if your early warning system is ringing, don't completely ignore it, but do take time out to try and understand what it is. And sometimes, sometimes your early warning system will be wrong. In the example I just gave, maybe... You know, you had a terrible relationship with your old manager, and actually, this new person you're talking to has nothing to do with that situation. But there will be other times where your gut instinct is actually quite right, and your suspicion that, you know, I don't know, this project isn't going to be successful because you haven't defined the budget well enough will probably be right. So, again, gut instinct is really important. Don't leave it out and ignore it because it's in the workplace and that doesn't belong, and try and work out what it is, what it's trying to tell you.
0: Now with the gut instinct, and you mentioned a really important point that sometimes it can be wrong. So how do we make sure that we're listening to that gut instinct, but also not just relying on that gut instinct and making decisions based on an instinct?
1: Well, I think, you know, take another example. If a colleague of, you, of yours was encouraging you to do something, I think what you would always do is listen carefully to them, understand what they're saying but still reflect on, you know, does this fit with my personality? Is this right for me? And that's basically what we're talking about with your gut instinct. If you can imagine your gut instinct being in the workplace, a colleague who's urging you to pay attention to something, you wouldn't completely ignore it, but you take a look, you'd look at the colleague, you'd look at the situation and you think, you know, who's right? Is what this person's saying to me right? Or am I right in thinking I should ignore
0: them? Fantastic. I love it. So now that we are coming up to time, I want to make sure that we do get to our last point, And that is about language and how it can derail us. Say more about that.
1: Yeah, no, sure. It's interesting because there have been a lot of studies done about the power of language. And certainly in work situations, how language can help us, but also hinder us. And there's a brilliant American woman called Tara Moore, who's written a book called Playing Big. And in that she looks at all the things that women can do that make themselves smaller work. And I remember a couple of years ago, reading her book and coming across this idea of language being a derailer. And I thought it was fabulous because it explained some of the things that I do as well in the workplace. And let let me explain a little bit. What she actually says is that as women, we can tend to use language in a way that makes us small or in a way that says to people in meetings, I'm not very serious about this, you don't need to take it seriously. Um, And what kind of phrases we use are things like, I'm not the expert here, but is this an idea? Or uh, let me play devil's advocate, and then an idea comes out. These kind of phrases actually make us very small, and actually say to people, I'm not convinced, so you don't need to be either. And when I first heard about this, I was staggered. I have a double whammy in the sense that I was brought up in a generation where we were taught to respect hierarchy. And I'm also British. And as you know, we Brits don't always say what we mean. I would be using these phrases because I wanted people to know I respected them. And I also wanted them to think I was nice, collegial, what have you. And I didn't realise that what I was doing was actually self-sabotaging at that point in time by using the language I was. So what I did at that point in time was just to observe other people in meetings, and to observe whether people use these phrases. And lo and behold, yes, they did. And there were a lot more women using these phrases than men. And indeed, my instinctive, my gut reaction, here we go again, in hearing people say that was indeed to think, well, I'm not going to bother listening to this because they don't sound convinced. So it was for me, it was a real eye-opener. And what also helps in the situation is actually to read your emails very carefully, because if we're in meetings saying these things, we tend to pepper our emails with them. And I did the same. I would have, you know, long constructed sentences in which I would basically be saying, I've been thinking about this often in this meeting and and maybe we should think about doing this. Again, which was kind of self-sabotaging my ideas and making them look small. So a long answer to your question, Catherine, but um, that's the role that language can play in making us small in in a work situation.
0: And I know that I am definitely one of those people that uses disqualifiers. Um, And being dismissive when I introduce something. So that is definitely something I've been trying to work on. But you brought up a good point about wanting to feel nice, feel gracious, make the other person like you. And that's something that's very common among women is to want to build up the relationship and not appear aggressive. So how do we use language that doesn't minimize us, but also (laughs) maintains that relationship?
1: Yeah, and there's a difference between being clear about what you want and being bitchy or aggressive. So a great example is that Tara Moore uses herself is somebody saying, I actually don't agree with you. And the actually, again, undermines us. Because what's wrong with saying, I don't agree with you? I don't agree with you is, is not bitchy, it's not aggressive, but it's just simply cutting out one word that makes you sound surprised that you're disagreeing with someone. So. I do think that there is a big difference, like I said, between being bitchy, assertive and pleasant, but still getting your point across.
0: Brilliant. Now, what kind of language or what are some things that we can do, I guess, is important in making us sound more confident and not diminishing what we're saying?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to do, again, is to be aware that you do this. So it's like if once you, you're aware that you say these things in a meeting and you include them in the email. It's like you're planting a seed in your brain. And what happens over time is that your brain begins to notice when you're starting to do this and it automatically helps pull you back. So you've got time to, to get rid of the, the, the softeners or the things that, that get in the way. So that's certainly one thing that I think is great. Once you've recognized the problem, you're on your way to solving it. If you're like me, like when I learned about this and, and, and I did this a lot, it could be quite overwhelming to think, gosh, how do I change my language? But actually, start small. Pick one thing that you know you say that is almost like a knee jerk reaction in certain situations and try and get rid of that one thing. And then, when you feel that you've succeeded in getting rid of that one thing, then you can move on to the next one. So, don't try and eat the whole elephant at one time, but break it into tiny chunks that makes it easier for you to get over this problem.
0: Yeah, that's how you build any habit start small and don't try to bite off the the whole piece, don't go from zero to 100. We need to be able to walk before we run, so to speak. And I have one more question for you. What is the number one thing that you want to leave with our audience for them to be successful? What's your number one recommendation?
1: Oh, I love this question. I I was actually doing a workshop here in Europe in the week with uh, women from the cable and telecommunications industry. And at the end, I asked them this. And I said, what do you feel is the number one thing you need to be successful? And interestingly, all of them said, slightly different ways, but all of them said, actually, to be supported by other women. And one really uh, coherent lady was saying to me that, you know, in the olden days, she would often be the only person in a meeting who was female. Now, there's a much more balance in the room. And that gives a huge amount of security and a huge amount of confidence to women, particularly in male-dominated industries like the telecommunications world. So what I would say to this is, you know, for women to support each other, for women to understand that that other women in the room are probably going through the same things and to give them a bit of space, to be a bit patient and to support them in bringing their points across.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, Julie, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic episode. Before you go, how can the audience get in touch
1: with you? So I am on social media. I'm on LinkedIn under my name, obviously. I'm also on Twitter under Julia Hart NL because apparently we have a lot of Julia Hart's in the world and you can get in touch with me via either of those
0: wonderful remind the audience again about your book
1: it's called Insider Secrets and you can buy it online you can buy the printed version or an electronic version through Amazon
0: wonderful well we will put all of that in the description below Julia thank you so much again for joining us it was a pleasure
1: and thank you for having me
0: Thanks again for being a listener of the Ask With Confidence podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're enjoying the content, please subscribe and review. We want this podcast to reflect what you, the listener, are experiencing in your everyday life and your feedback will help us do just that. Again, thank you and we hope you join us in the next episode.